God as we have summarized it and confessed it in Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 52. You can find that Lord's Day on page 563 of your books of praise. And here we continue in our confession concerning the Lord's Prayer and prayer as the greatest part of our thankfulness to the Lord, or the most important part. And we come then to the last Lord's Day. And we have question and answer 127. This is your confession. What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves, we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us. Will you, therefore, uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory? How do you conclude your prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all this we ask of you because as our king, having power over all things, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because not we, but your holy name should so receive all glory forever. What does the word amen mean? Amen means it is true and certain. For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of him. Thus far our confession. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a world that has a tension to it. What we see as we go through this world is two competing worlds at odds with one another. On the one hand, as we go through this life, we see echoes of Eden. We see echoes of the beauty of the world as it was meant and made to be. We see the beauty of creation. We see the wonder of a a newborn child. But on the other hand, we go through a world that wears us down. We see the effects of the fall all around us. And that wears us down. We see acts of destruction in creation. We see our bodies not working the way they're supposed to. We see illnesses. We see death. This past week, each and every one of you here had to deal with challenges, with adversity. Each and every one of us here was worn down. You came through these doors worn down and weary. That's the tension we live with in this life. On the one hand, we thank and praise God and we experience all the blessings of life in this world. But at the same time, there are burdens laid on our hearts because of the brokenness of this world. And what happens as we go through this life with this awareness of who God is and what he's done 
and the challenges of, of sin brokenness in our lives, we feel pressure to be drawn away from him and from fellowship with him. You know, it may be pressure that comes from, from friends at school. It may be pressure that comes from people you work with or friends in your neighborhood. It may be something that is happening with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It, is, it may be some pressure that's there because you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It may be something in your marriage. It may be in your family. Maybe in your social circles. Each and every one of us here can think of things that are there. And as we go through that, our relationship with the Lord is somehow stressed. It has pressure applied to it by all those things happening. We live in the, the middle of the beautiful melody that comes from the music of grace. It's a music that is heard in creation and in redemption. But there's these discordant notes that come into our lives, into the middle of that melody, and they, and they shake it all up. So as we walk along the path of this life, the question that comes to us, the question we confront in Lord's Day 52, is how can we stay loyal? How can we stay close to the Lord we love with everything that's going on around us? How do we live in a world where Christ is our king, but at the same time there's an enemy on the loose that threatens his sovereignty and our appreciation, our experience of his sovereignty, his kingship. What we're going to see this afternoon is that the last three parts of the Lord's Prayer each speak to this question and to the tension of this life. The sixth petition, petition is another way of saying request, the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, which reads, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, that speaks to that question. The doxology, which means a word of praise, and reads, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, speaks to this question. And the last word of our prayer, amen, it is true and certain, that speaks to this question. Each phrase directs us to our heavenly Father, and gratefully and confidently looks to him for preservation in the middle of all the pressures of life. And each phrase is part of the prayers we make every day. And so this afternoon I proclaim to you the word of God as we confess it in Lord's Day 52 under the following theme. We call on God to keep us close on the path of life. We're going to see that this means two things. Number one, humbly walking in the face of temptations. Number two, confidently walking in the strength of God. So in the first place then, we're going to see that as we call on the Lord, as we call on God to keep us close to him on the, on the path of life, we, we humbly walk in the face of temptations. Now, as we consider this sixth and final petition of the, the Lord's Prayer, we need to come to terms with what it means to say, and lead us not into temptation. What does that mean exactly? You know, the implication there is that, that if we didn't ask God to do this, God would lead us into temptation. That's what's going to happen unless you tell God, don't lead me into temptation. 
So the question is there, does God tempt us? We just read James 1, and there James says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So what are we asking in this petition? And what we need to keep in mind as we consider this request that we make of the Lord, of our Heavenly Father, we need to keep in mind what a temptation is. At its very root, temptation is about being disloyal to God. We belong to God. We are His people. He's made us His people through His Son. He saved us through His Son. We know that. We, we desire to, to walk close to God on the path of life. But there are forces that wish to pry us away, to make us disloyal, to break faith. We're assaulted on every side. And we know that we cannot stand against these things that are attacking us. And what we're asking here, when we say lead us not into temptations, we're, we're being asked not to be led into situations that would cause us to sin. And when we do find ourselves there, that God would uphold us. That sense that is there would lead us not into temptation has the sense of do not abandon us in temptation. Let us not fall into temptation. Matthew 26, 41. One commentator, William Hendrickson, put it this way. He says, it would be like making this request when it comes to our health. Lord, grant that I may be so careful in observing the rules of health that I may not become ill. But whatever in your providence befalls me, keep me close to your side that my faith may not fail. That's the sense in which we ask the Lord to lead us not into temptation. There's a sense here that we have this fear of temptation by the evil one and we don't welcome it. There's no bravado. We're not like a soldier who's who's eager to be shot at. Soldiers are afraid of combat, in a sense. They're not eager to be put in harm's way, but if they are, then they will go forward. So as we go through this life, we realize that temptations will come. But we genuinely fear them because we know our weakness. It's a humble petition. We don't stand there in the face of the evil one and say, bring it on. I can take it. No, we realize he's too strong for us. And we pray that our Father will deliver us from him when he tempts us. We wish to be delivered from our enemies. And this morning, we looked at this as well. Our confession groups our enemies into three parts, three categories, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. We, when we looked at Proverbs 25, 28, we, we saw that those are the enemies that attack us. And this afternoon, we'll, we'll consider those three enemies again in a little different way. But these enemies, they attack us, and we know that we're too strong to stand against them on our own. 
You know, we can be attacked by Satan. Certain thoughts come into our minds unbidden. I think you've all felt that. There is this sense that something comes into your mind and you're like, where did that come from? Now we can say, yes, part of it came from our sinful nature, but there's something there that's, that's pressing on us. Fiery arrows piercing us. We feel enticed to do something that would move us away from God more and more. And one of the things that we need to do as we unmask our enemy, the devil, is to look at what he does. Because what he does with his suggestions is he challenges the beauty and the music of grace. What he does, first of all, is he says, you can do it. You can do that. It's okay. Just like he said to Eve, did God really say? He says, what would be so wrong about this? Why does God make such a big deal out of this? And then, when you do it, what does Satan say to you? You pathetic little sinner. How could you do that? How could God love you when you act that way? One draws us away and then the other makes us think that we can't come back. He tries to make us live as those who have not been saved by grace and then he tries to obscure God's grace that we are forgiven and that God will take us back when we do fall. Peter says, and Peter knew, he was sifted like wheat by Satan in the garden, in the courtyard of the high priest. 1 Peter 5, that Satan is a roaring lion looking to devour. He will stop at nothing to tear us down. So, See who Satan is. See that enemy. Unmask him. Do not lose sight of grace, that your life is a response to God's grace. But when you do fall, don't lose sight of God's grace, that your sins are forgiven in Christ. But not all sin is from Satan. Satan is the general, he's the ruler. But there's also the world that's there and the world is opposed to God and it breaks us down. You know, we looked at that a little bit this morning with entertainment, but you also see it in marketing. It's one of the things you see when you look at people who are doing those ads. They get paid to make you buy something and it's kind of scary to say it, but they're generally smarter than you are. They're smarter than us. They know what makes us tick, and they know how to get it. They use sex, they use money, they use power, and it draws us in. It forms us. We, we begin to expect that sex must be there to make something interesting. If a joke's not dirty, it's not really that good. 
If there's not an attractive woman standing by blinds, why would I want them? I'm not joking. Those are the ads. Scantily clad women selling blinds for your home. I don't know why, but that's... It made me look. And I'm sure it made others look. But the world presses in on us and tries to form us. It takes the brokenness that's inside us and it magnifies it and it fosters it. You need to unmask it. We need to see what is being done to us by the world around us. But the other thing the world does is it pushes us to to feel embarrassed about our faith. I think that's something that we are coming to experience more and more today. That if you are a Christian, you are somebody who is bigoted. You are somebody who is weak and narrow-minded. The Christian is made to look silly. And the secular one is made to look smart and savvy. Who's the foil? Who's Who's the joke in the sitcoms? It's the Christian. And we wouldn't want to be like them, would we? We're embarrassed about the gospel. The world presses in, it lures us in, and then it destroys us. And then finally, there's our flesh. We can try and say, the devil made me do it. We can say, when it rains in the world, it drips in the church. But at the end of the day, this final enemy is the one that gets us most, and that is our sinful nature. With Adam and Eve, humanity fell. We became corrupted. If we were left to ourselves, we would go our own way, farther and farther away from God. We would be loyal only to ourselves. What we do is we actively conspire with Satan and the world against God and ourselves. And those three enemies, Satan, the world, and our sinful nature, they come together, they work together, and they try to undo us as we walk along the path of life with God. They drive us away from the God we love. So what we do in this petition is we humbly walk in the face of those temptations knowing that we are weak And we call out to the only one who can save us. We call out to our Father in heaven. And we say to him, our enemy is powerful. Deliver us, stay close to us. Keep us close to you on the path of life. So as you pray this petition, also live this petition. Pray that God would make you humble make you see that you cannot stand on your own, that you need him every step of the way and look to him and rest on him. But as you walk through this world, this broken world, as you walk the path of life, this fear is also balanced with a knowledge and an understanding of who your deliverer is and that means that you can confidently walk the path of life in the strength of God. And that's really what we see in the last two parts of the Lord's Prayer, what we call the doxology and the amen. 
So the next, the doxology itself is not actually a request. That's why we don't call it a petition. It's not the seventh petition. No, it's a word of praise to God. Now, one of the things that we should address as we deal with this is the question of whether or not it should be there. Perhaps some of you have read in your Bibles the Lord's Prayer that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples. And you read through it, and this last part isn't there. Perhaps your children notice it and say, Dad, Mom, why, why isn't that last part there? Why doesn't it say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? And some Bibles will have in small letters at the bottom, some late manuscripts say, if you look at Luke 11, you'll see that you, you, little comment that the translators of this edition of the Bible didn't feel that it should be there. So what is going on there? Now when we dig into what's going on there, what we find is that when we look at the earliest copies that we have of the Gospel of Matthew, they don't have that there. It's simply not there. In fact, when you look at writings of the early church fathers where they quote this part of Matthew, it's not there either. They show no knowledge or there's no evidence of them being aware that it existed. However, when you look 600, 700 years later, those copies, and those are the copies that the King James Bible was based on, those copies had it. So it is generally agreed that we cannot be certain that these words were part of the original prayer. Luke doesn't indicate them at all. And then Matthew, the early editions don't appear to have it. So why do we have them? Well, what we do know is that from very early on, this doxology was part of the prayer that God's people would give. There's an ancient document called the Didache, Didache, my Greek, it's been five years since seminary. The Didache is an ancient document. It was, a, it was a document that the church fathers put together. It was written about 100 years after Christ. And what we find in there is that this doxology is already there. So it may not have been in Matthew, but the church, when the church said this prayer, she included these words. And the doxology has been maintained as well because it fits with the prayer and it's also, it comes from Scripture. We read First Chronicles 29 and that's likely the source of this doxology. There, you may have even thought it as I read it. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. That's verse 11. So the doxology is a beautiful and fitting close to the Lord's prayer. And what we're saying when we pray it as church is that God is willing and able to do what we ask of him. As weak sinners, we go through this hostile world with devils filled and we plead with God that he would deliver us. And we know that he can do 
what we ask of Him. Because He is the one with the power. His is the kingdom. Heaven and earth is His. He can hear and He can act. And that's a comfort to us because we come to God worn down by the attacks of Satan, worn down by the world, worn down by our own sinful nature. In a sense, you can even sympathize with whatever scribes may or may not have added this phrase to Matthew. That's how they used to copy the Bible. It was by hand. So used to saying it because it's so fitting when you pray to then praise the Lord because you know that He's the one who can hear. We come to God knowing all the ways in which we've messed up. We come to God with with the concerns of our families, concerns about our jobs, concerns about our health. We come to God knowing that we have been pursuing our kingdoms, we've been pursuing our wills, that we have marginalized, forgotten, or ignored His name, His kingdom, His will. We've walked along the path of life, keeping a bit of a distance from Him. But at the same time, even though we walk with all of that sin, brokenness bearing down on us, we know that it's not not all gloom and doom, that we can have hope because we know that Christ has come, that He has saved us from our sin, that He has brought in His kingdom and that that kingdom is spreading all over this world and that all glory will come to God. Every knee will bow. We see that in history. We see that in God's word. But we also feel that beginning of new life in our hearts. We see Christ. We live by the Spirit. And so we pray in confidence. We look to our Father as we walk on the path of life. And we ask him to provide us with everything that we need so that we can keep praising him. As David said, 1 Chronicles 29, everything is from your hands. And we pray, Lord, give us everything from your hands so that we may give it back. We may feel daunted, discouraged. You may be here this afternoon feeling like you can't go on, feeling like you're at the end of your rope. But when you pray this petition, you confess with the church that God is the one who is willing and who is able. That he is the one who can deliver us from our enemies because he is the stronger one. Because his is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And we confess that confidence even more as we say that last word of our prayer, amen. That word amen is, comes from the Hebrew word for truth. That word is actually used about 130 times in the New Testament. And three quarters of those times are on the lips of our Lord Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, what he's saying is amen, amen, I say to you. 
Amen is an affirmation. This is true. This is certain. And what we say when we end our prayers is that we are saying that God is the faithful one. That he is the one who is true to his promises. Even though we can feel like our prayers hit the ceiling. Do you have that sometimes? You pray and you feel like they're, they're not going anywhere. We have those times. But when we say amen, we confess in the middle of our sinful weakness that even though I may think that my prayers hit the ceiling, I know that God can still hear them. And even when we're unsure, we can rely and rest on His faithfulness. He knows our deepest thoughts. He knows our fears. He knows our struggles. Even when we're not fully aware. Even when we don't feel that God hears us, we can be sure that He does. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. That's what we do in prayer. In prayer, we come to God through the Spirit for Jesus' sake. We pray to the Father knowing that we will be heard because of Jesus and we come to Him by the power of the Spirit. God is our triune God. He is close to us on the path of life and you see that so beautifully in prayer. He is before us, behind us and in us. The Trinity is so intimately part of our prayer life, coming to our Heavenly Father, seeing His love so powerfully in what He did through His Son, and also having His intimate closeness by His Spirit that moves us and grips us. The fact that our hearts hurt from the brokenness of this world, the fact that the tension of this life burdens us so much is the Spirit groaning within us. And so as we live, as we walk along the path of life, that path that has echoes of Eden and, and evidences of the brokenness of sin, we can walk with confidence because we know that God is close to us. And in prayer, we can call on Him, resting on that closeness and, and asking that He would give us everything we have need of and draw us near to Him. So hold firmly to your heavenly Father in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Amen.